African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Good morning and welcome to yet another installment of African Dialogue. You're tuned in to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikon Amiso and we're currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Now today in the show we'll be discussing a declaration by King Swadi III that Swaziland is now under a monarchical democracy. But before we get into the business of the day, let's get an update from the news desk with Anne Musa. In the headlines, the U.S. increases security at facilities on anniversary of September 11 attacks. An explosion causes serious damage in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi and France convenes a special defense council meeting on Syria. Good morning. The United States has increased security at U.S. facilities abroad on the anniversary of the September 11 attacks, citing the attack that killed four U.S. government employees in Benghazi, Libya last year. Four Americans, including the U.S. ambassador to Libya, were killed in an attack on a compound in Benghazi. The administration initially said the assault grew out of anti-Western protests. Americans in Israel and Palestine have been warned to be virtual. The U.S. consulate in Jerusalem on Wednesday warned American citizens in Israel and Palestine of the need for caution and awareness of personal security on the anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. Americans have been advised to review their personal security plans, remain aware of their surroundings, including local events, and monitor local news stations for updates. They were also told to maintain a high level of vigilance, take appropriate steps to enhance personal security, and follow the instructions of local authorities. An explosion has caused serious damage to a foreign ministry building in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi. The explosion comes on the first anniversary of an attack by militants on the United States consulate in Benghazi, which killed four Americans. It's not known if the blast reportedly caused by a car bomb had resulted in casualties. Benghazi has been hit by a wave of deadly attacks in recent months, targeting security force officers and members of the judiciary, many of whom served in the previous regime. 
The political arm of Libya's Muslim Brotherhood has called on Prime Minister Ali Zidane to resign, accusing him of failing to tackle corruption or build a united national army. Mohamed Sawan, who heads the Islamist Justice and Construction Party, says the party was also considering withdrawing its five ministers in Zidane's cabinet. Zidane has seen pressure piling on him by Islamists and independents, displeased with his handling of an unprecedented wave of strikes by oil workers and armed guards that has paralyzed the country's oil production and led to billions of dollars of lost revenue. French President François Hollande has convened a special meeting of the country's Defence Council. This as the United States promised to consider a Russian diplomatic plan to take away Syria's chemical weapons. Addressing the nation, President Barack Obama said the proposal may allow him to avoid a military strike, which France had previously pledged to support. French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabias, who attended the meeting, has shown support for the new proposal, assuming consequences of non-compliance by the Syrian government are clearly set out. The country's defense and interior ministers, along with Prime Minister Jean-Marc Arroux, were also present at the gathering of the Defense Council. The government of Jordan and the UN has launched a new partnership platform for refugee hosting communities. The platform launched by Minister of Planning and International Cooperation Dr. Ibrahim Sayef will serve as the main forum for national and international partners to plan and strategize support to communities severely affected by the impact of the Syrian crisis. It will also be the principal national platform for the coordination, monitoring and evaluation of support provided to host communities. Don Bob reports. Since the outbreak of hostilities in Syria over two years ago, over 500,000 Syrians have sought refuge in Jordan, a country of 6 million people. The government estimates that a similar number has been resident in the country since before the crisis. United Nations resident coordinator in Jordan, Costanza Farina, said, now more than ever, coordination and partnership become a priority to optimize resources while addressing one of the most important socio-economic development challenges for the country. The impact of the Syrian refugee crisis in Jordan has been reflected across all areas of life. Increased competition for jobs has driven wages down and increased already high unemployment rates. Recapping the top stories, the U.S. increases security at facilities on the anniversary of September 11 attacks. An explosion caused serious damage in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi, and France convenes a special defense council meeting on Syria. That's the news for this hour. Well, thank you to Anne Musa for that news update, bringing the time now to six minutes after 11 Central African time here on Channel Africa. And, of course, you tuned in to African Dialogue, which comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Now, I urge you to also share your sentiments with us on today's show. Find us on Facebook on our fan page, or you can tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or simply SMS us to plus 27823. 325905. That's plus 27823325905. Now, as I said earlier, uh, before Anne gave us that news update, we are, of course, going to be talking or discussing rather the declaration by King Swadi III that Swaziland is now under a monarchical uh, democracy that is, of course, a monarchy. 
Various organizations and political commentators have reacted with shock to a declaration by Swaziland's King Swati III that his kingdom is now under monarchical democracy. The king made the announcement recently. He said the new system will merge democracy and the monarchy. So on today's show, we'll be seeking to really understand what the difference is to, uh, the democ- to what is happening there now in Swaziland and, of course, what this new declaration will actually mean for that country. And, of course, as always, I'm not the person to have all the answers, but I'm just the gateway here on Channel Africa to get the answers from those people who are better, uh, who are better, better equipped, rather, to give uh, the information around these issues and now on the show today in studio, we've got Laki Lukele, who's a spokesperson of the Swaziland Solidarity Network. He's joining us in studio to discuss this particular topic with us today. Lucky, good morning and welcome to African Dialogue. Good morning, Zikwana, and good morning to the listeners as well. Well, thank you for joining us, Lucky. I believe on the line we've got Ibrahim Faki, who's there, who's with the Electoral Institute for the Sustainability of Democracy in Africa. Ibrahim, good morning and welcome to Channel Africa. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me and good morning to, to Lucky, your guest, and to your listeners as well. Thank you for joining us. Also on the line, we've got uh, Chris Fandone, who is a researcher at Chatham House in London. Chris, how are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Thank, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Now, those are just some of the guests that will be uh, conversing with us today as we discuss this topic at Swaziland, trying to really understand what this declaration really means for that particular country. You are tuned in to African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and, of course, your gateway to Africa. My name is Zikona Miso. Please do participate on the show. We encourage participation from you, our listeners. Find us on Facebook, tweet us, that's at Channel Africa 1, or you can SMS us to plus 27-823-325-905. Now, Abraham, I'm going to start with you. I mean, there has been uh, this uh, belief, you know, that the decision to go the route of monarchical democracy uh, by the king was influenced uh, by a vision which the king saw. Is this true or is it some, some sort of tale or folklore stories that we're hearing? <laughs> Look, I mean, I you know, uh, I, I, I can't be one who says I question whether some people have religious or other kinds of uh, mythical visions or mystical visions, should that be. Uh, and if that's the case, well, you know, all good and well for them. But whether there is a vision or whether there is no vision, whether there is a mystical vision or even a religious one, that, that becomes an organizing principle for the politics and the governance system of a particular country. Sounds a little bit absurd to me, simply because it is one which is attempting to suggest that the current status quo, the current, the current governance regime, the current, the current political regime is one which will continue unabated in its current form. Uh, and that is a form we know which kind of effectively denies certain fundamental political rights. Now, if, if that is what uh, this vision is going to be premised on, and that's the consequence for ordinary citizens and ordinary people in Swaziland, uh, then, I'm, then I'm, I'm afraid it's a vision, a vision which, uh, which ordinary people will find good reason to question. Uh, now, can a monarchy exist as a democracy? Well, probably, if you think of, of, of different kinds of governance regimes in which 
there is a degree of authority and tradition and 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 power vested uh, in a traditional leader, whether it be a king, a queen, or otherwise. It is certainly possible to devise a governance regime which still invests some authority in, in a power, but which allows ordinary citizens uh, the ability to express their political rights, to make political choices, and to give voice to their politics, number one. Number two, that there has to be certain limits in any kind of governance system where you say it's a democracy, and this one says it's a monarchical democracy, contradictory as that might sound, it means that you have to place certain limits on the exercise of authority, the exercise of power, and the ability to, 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 to issue, for instance, executive decrees. So that power and authority has to have a certain degree of limits imposed upon it. Uh, that's the meaning of, 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 of a system of government which says it includes elements of a democracy. So you can't unfettered executive power exercised by a traditional leader, uh, and especially not one which says, I derive it from a particular vision. Okay, that is Ibrahim Fakir there. Very passionate about this particular topic, I can hear. And at this moment, I'd just like to take the opportunity to also welcome in studio Pilani Ndebele, who's the campaign manager, the Swaziland Democratic uh, Campaign. Pilani, how are you today? Are you good? Are you you happy to be on the show? Yes, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Now, Pilani, you haven't missed much. I was just asking, you know, just as a sort of a, an icebreaker to understand what we're talking about here today, this declaration, you know, by King Swati um, to have this monarchical um, uh, uh, democracy, which he says. And um, there's this belief that it was actually a vision which he had, um, that, that that's why we are at the stage where we are today. We, we are hearing about this declaration. Now, I was asking whether, do you think this is true or is it just one of those um, beliefs that people have or it's just one of those folklore uh, tales? I'm going to um, pose the question to Laki as well. And of course, we've had Ibrahim also describing what this actually uh, means, that the actual meaning of this whole um, uh, uh, monarchical uh, democracy. Over to you, Laki. Well, firstly, you can't mix the two names. Mm. Monarchy by their nature, not democratic. So, therefore, we find it extremely bizarre from the, <coughs> from the king to even begin to say those things. And, uh, but it has come to our attention that actually he was visited by one popular bishop uh, a week before he announced this particular view where the bishop prophesied to him. Now, being uh, this special person that he is, he then goes and lies to the nation that he was visited by God. I think all Christians all over the world are insulted by this kind of behavior, <coughs> especially by someone that is known that meaning the, the mouth that does not tell lies. Mm. So that's the fact of the matter. Okay, well, that, those are the sentiments of Laki Lukele around this whole uh, vision concept which has been put out there in the media. Pilani, over to you. Your thoughts on this? Uh, yes, uh, let me start by saying that um, it's important that we're having this, this debate at this mm. particular time. And um, um, I, I concur with um, Ibrahim and um, Laki here. And uh, what, what is so interesting for me, and I, I think it's very difficult for me to to particularly believe that uh, it's actually a vision. Mm-hmm. For me, I would, I would call it, uh, it, it was a nightmare that he, he indeed experienced over perhaps uh, one night or two consecutive nights. Because I, I believe that um, the, the king, uh, as, as we speak right now, 
is haunted by quite a number of, of things mm-hmm. that are happening in Swaziland. And let me just allude to some to, to some of them. And these are, are, are basic things that, um, for example, the people of Swaziland are actually expi- aspiring and are in need. And I believe that um, when the when the king, for example, um, eats um, five uh, three course meal every day, he's haunted by someone who is going hungry in in the villages down there, and he's haunted by someone who who, who is dependent uh, on aid uh, for 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 the past uh, five or, or ten years or so. And I'm 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 also, also tempted to to argue that um, when he travels freely around uh, from one palace to another, he's actually haunted knowing very well that um, he has imprisoned certain uh, political activists and they're languishing in prisons as we speak as we Pilani, speak right now. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought right there because mm-hmm. I'd like to bring in Chris at this stage. I mean, Chris, you've heard all three of our other guests just giving their sentiments around the whole uh, vision uh, concept which has been just placed out there in the media. I mean, we've heard uh, Lucky talking about it not really, uh, uh, n- him not believing it, saying that it's an insult really and also um, Pilani here having described it as a nightmare if at all there was a vision, um, uh, citing some of the challenges which the country is facing at this time. Now, Chris, my question to you, and I think it'll, it will be for everybody as well, you know, monarchical uh, democracy. Uh, Lucky alluded to the fact that the two words, in essence, are actually quite contradictory in, 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 in description, so to speak. So what does, actu- what does this actually mean, a, a monarchical democracy? And is, is can the two actually coexist, as um, our other guests have alluded to the fact that monarchy and democracy are, in essence, quite different? Well, I think that use of the term monarchical democracy, first of all, doesn't come from uh, a vision, I don't think. I think that following internal pressures and external pressures in the run-up to the 20th of September elections, I think that uh, the king was advised um, before the vision, so-called vision, um, he had been advised of these pressures. And I think that the term uh, monarchical democracy is really a recognition and potentially a rebranding of the current system to include the word democracy. So in Swaziland, there are the two separate political systems. There is a kind of quasi-democratic process. Um, This doesn't necessarily fit into a regional or an international definition of what constitutes democracy, but it is not completely undemocratic. Um, For example, we do have these um, elections coming up. Um, Political parties in the country do exist, even though they cannot compete in the elections. But then there's also the separate political system, which is the execution of power and the public policy decision-making process, which lies entirely with the king, his advisors, and the royal family. So you have these two competing systems, and the monarchical system will always trump the democratic system. The power lies with the king and the household rather than with the democratic process. So you have two systems, and I think that in terms of um, 
having a system which can then have the monarch included into a democratic system as you have in other countries in the world, these two systems need to be combined into one. You can't have a separate monarchical system and a separate democratic system where the benefits of democracy in terms of holding decision makers to account and that accountability process, if that doesn't have an effect on the executive decision making process, then the two cannot really coexist. But I think that the recognition by the king that there is a democratic process and the use of the word monarchical democracy now presents an opportunity for opposition movements within the country, but also external observers of the elections, for example, the SADAC electoral observers, and also there will be a team of eight observers from the Commonwealth. Now that the king has admitted that there is a democratic process there, it's up to these international observers to say, well, if you're saying that there's a democracy here, we are now going to challenge you on what this democracy actually means. And so I think he's kind of, um, he's let an opportunity arise Mm -hmm. for observers to be able to hold him to account on that. Okay, those are the sentiments there of Chris Vendon, you know, describing what this monarchical um, democracy actually means. Ibrahim, do you agree with uh, uh, Chris? Sorry? Do you agree with Chris, Ibrahim? To, to a degree, I do. I mean, I, 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 I accept that there is a process uh, which follows the outlines of what a democracy ought to be. So ordinary citizens can go to the poll. Uh, They can vote for individuals in what is the Stikundla system. Unfortunately, of course, political parties, which, though they might exist, as Chris is saying, have no role to play in the political process. So they they can't contest uh, any of the seats in the Stikundla system. They can't put up a candidate. They can have an individual uh, who may in fact, come from a political party or not. But they don't, once that individual is elected, they don't represent the political party, and they don't, in fact, um, speak on behalf of the political party, and, in fact, they can't. So it's, it's, quite a curious, it's quite a curious thing to say that you can exist, but you don't, in fact, have the right to speak. So in political science, the technical terms would be that you're allowing these political parties to aggregate societal interests but they can't, in fact, articulate them. Now, where this matters and why this matters is because when these individuals exist in institutions, and remember in the very early introductory uh, point I was making, I was saying that there are absolutely no limits to the extent to which the king is able to exercise authority and power. Mm -hmm. There are no checks. There is no separation of power. There is no limit on his authority. And so these individuals who are not speaking on behalf of political parties who whose political parties can't articulate certain visions, are not able to exercise a degree of oversight over the exercise of power by the king. By any, so any executive authority which is exercised in the implementation of policy, in decision-making policies, neither those individuals which might be sitting in parliament, in the National Assembly, nor any of the political parties who exist outside of it, have the right to oversee the decisions of the king. And because there's no right of oversight, there is very little ability to demand a level of accountability. So what you're saying is that 
is democracy, but it's a very limited aspect of democracy. It's a democracy which is very formalistic. It's a democracy which allows you simply to come out and cast a ballot, but that is literally where it ends. So the freedom of association is limited for political parties. The freedom of expression of political parties is, 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 is limited. The freedom of assembly of a political party is limited and, and is granted only to that they are able to meet, but they are not able to find institutional representation. And it is a very limited, very constrained uh, okay. aspect of democracy, which is in fact in place. So, All right. so the question one has to ask is that, is this really democratic? Okay, Ibrahim, thank you very much. I'm going to um, stop you right there. And what we're going to do is we're going to move to a short commercial break. Please do stay on the line uh, to you, our guests, stay on the line. And we will carry on with our conversation after this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Time has just gone 24 minutes after 11 Central African time here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And of course, you're a gateway to Africa. My name is Zikon Namiso, and you're tuned into African Dialogue here. And today we are, of course, discussing a declaration by King Swati III that Swaziland is now under monarchical democracy. And of course, our guests citing a lot of issues and a lot of pointers have been coming through from all four of our guests joining us on today's discussion around this particular particular topic. Some citing that really a, mon- a monarchy and a democracy are two separate things, that there's a contradiction there somewhere. But also we had Chris there who had mentioned some of the pros of this uh, new system which will be in place there in Swaziland. Now Lucky, I'd like to move over to you once more. Now the king has been under immense pressure um, when it comes to uh, rights groups uh, saying that he should introduce meaningful constitutional reforms in his kingdom. Now do you believe that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak? Well, yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, um, mainly from the international pressure that comes from solidarity partners all over the world. South Africans in particular, and there are millions, they've shown so much solidarity, of which the people of Sweden highly appreciate that. That's the reason why, for instance, the king, <coughs> sorry for that, uh, receives the strange streams uh, uh, that he then goes on to announce. Uh, it's, it's not just a dream. It's because he has failed to, un- to explain to the international community what is Tinkundla's system. Now, therefore, he then twist to say, we have something new called monarchical democracy, of which, again, we find it a little bit uh, strange for Sadak, because this coming election in Swaziland, they do not even meet minimum requirement of its own protocol. Therefore, now, Lucky, you're talking about the Dinkundla, um, uh, which is of obviously um, in uh, action now, and this new um, declaration having come in. What are, what are the differences thereof? I mean, you've heard some of the pointers which uh, some of the other speakers have actually made. What are the real significant uh, differences that this will have? Well, there's no difference. Basically, uh, all these people that will be elected, they do not even have minimum powers to nominate a prime minister. Now, therefore... There's nothing new to us. The struggle continues. 
Now, over to you, Pilani. What, what sort of climate do you think this creates, you know, for the people of Swaziland ahead of the polls? Let, let, let me start by saying that um, I, I find it difficult to, to believe that um, there is elections in, in Swaziland. Mm-hmm. I would call it um, Dingunla's elections. I think that that's the proper term that we should give there. Because uh, concurring with what Lucky said... And why is that? Uh, the the Dingunla's elections are actually a fuss and they do not meet any, any universe, universally agreed standards mm-hmm. with regards to election to elections so we shouldn't call them um elections but rather selections and um and i think um when when the debate of uh, monarchical uh, democracy and other terms that are related to it i think we need to to broaden that debate a little bit and if that announcement means that um there will be open and public de- debate for example on the constitutional framework of swaziland on the issue of multi-party politics, the political parties and participation, the participation of civil society and trade union movement, then it will, it, it will, it will have some, some substance it is. But if it is only uh, a process of rubber stamp, stamping the, 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 the repressive regime of the previous uh, years, then it's, it's, it's absolutely meaningless to the, to the people of Swaziland. Mm. And I think it's important for us to, to, to acknowledge that um, the system as it exists at the moment through law and religion, is actually depoliticized a nation and people don't participate anymore in politics. So as it stands right now, uh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done and those statements should uh, be rather transformed into into uh, practical action in order for it to, to bring results. Okay, Pilani, just hold that thought. Chris, um, the Chatham House has um, you know, done some research and a report, obviously, on uh, Swaziland. What are some of the, the contents you know, there of, of this particular um, uh, report? And, of course, um, some of the things that are being said here by our other two guests, do you agree with, with, with some of their sentiments or not? Uh, yeah, I do agree with their sentiments. Um, I do think that um, the parallel systems of uh, monarchy and democracy um, in the context of Swaziland um, are incompatible. Um, the focus of our report, which is going live on the Chatham House website today, if people are interested in um, having a look at it, um, the focus of it is on the economic situation and the opportunity that this presents. So. The SARCU revenue sharing formula is under debate at the moment. There are negotiations for changing this formula. And this could present an opportunity for um, a move away from direct cash transfer payments to the government into more kind of in-kind payments and specific project funding, which will take away the main revenue source from the king. The second uh, economic... Uh, opportunity is that the EU preferential access um, under the EU ACP Cotonou Agreement and the Sugar Protocol um, is coming to an end, which means that the preferential access into the European Union market for sugar exports Mm -hmm. um, will be less of a a good revenue stream for the government. So there's going to be a lot of financial pressure on the government. Um, There is still a loan from South Africa on the table for 2.4 billion rand, um, and this has conditions attached. Um, They're not uh, very specific conditions in outlining exactly what a democratic system in Swaziland should look like, but there are conditions of an inclusive democratic dialogue. So... 
this is what the report is saying, that there is this opportunity, and there's an opportunity for external engagement um, through uh, SADAC, through the election monitoring team, but also through the U.S., they have an embassy in Umbabane, and the European External Action Service is about to upgrade its mission in Umbabane into a full diplomatic mission with an ambassador resident from October this year. So there's going to be international presence on the ground, and especially for the EU and the US. Unfortunately, Swaziland is not a foreign policy priority for these people. Mm. Um, Regionally, it's being crowded out by Zimbabwe. Uh, Internationally, Syria is the big talking point at the moment. But the fact that there isn't any direct bilateral relationship between Swaziland and EU member states individually means that this is a good testing ground for the European External Action Service in terms of promoting a values-based mission in terms of promoting good governance and human rights. So we've been looking at these international pressures and the opportunity that this presents for them to engage in a reform process with the monarchy and in um, assisting and complementing the internal reform pressures and internal opposition movements. Now, Chris, there have been um, some accusations to that report um, by um, Chatham House uh, when it comes to Swaziland that um, uh, it is too gentle, as, as they say, um, uh, too gentle in approach um, towards the, the, the king in itself. Do you feel that this is a fair analysis? Um, I can understand why the report has been criticised for being too gentle in its approach, but I would, um, I think that the report is good at what it does, and I think that the point of the report isn't to um, be an advocacy for um, NGOs and advocacy groups on the ground. What it does is it highlights the opportunities that are present. So while we do not come out explicitly um, against the king, um, it does look at the opposition movements and it does present opportunities there. And I think that um, some of the criticism has been against how there is, you know, supposedly the report supports the monarchy. It doesn't. But what we're looking at is for opportunities for engagement and negotiation in terms of coming, um, in terms of presenting an opposition against um, a monarch in this way. Um, the, the king holds all executive power, so it's reform must come from within. Reform must come from within the royal family, and it's about engaging with the king and not isolating the king. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the previous. Um, diplomatic sticking points have been around this, uh, these accusations against the king, the focus in the international media on his conspicuous consumption and his lifestyle, and also these repeated accusations of it's not a democratic system, and it's not an entirely democratic system, but it, as we've heard, um, but there are, there is a democratic process that can be built upon. It's not perfect, and it's not effective at the moment, but it can be built upon. And so this is what the report's highlighting, is that actually it's about negotiation and engagement rather than um, isolation, because by isolating, you know, there's, there's then no room for, for dialogue. Lucky, do you agree with, with Chris? I mean, talking about engagement and uh, actually getting down and, and, and talking as opposed to what he's calling as isolation of the, the king himself um, in, 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 these, in this regard when we talk about the challenges which you and Pilani have also cited earlier.
Well, yes, partly we agree to any discussion. I know for a fact the Prima Liberation Movement, Putemo, has always been open to any negotiations. But you can't negotiate with a prisoner. Currently, uh, Putemo is criminalized in Swaziland, declared a, a terrorist organization together with many other organizations that are aligned to it. Any form of political activity is criminalized. So therefore, the starting point is to unbend political parties unconditional release of all political prisoners, unconditional return of, of all exiles, and then the people of Swaziland will then call what we call a constitutional assembly, which will then pave a way forward, not only for the people, but also for the monarch, whether the people of Swaziland want a republic or a, a monarchal, uh, I would say, a constitutional monarch. So the monarchy must be subjected to the peoples of Swaziland, really democracy. So the starting point is to unbend political parties. Pilani? Yes. <coughs> yes. Do, 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 do you agree with, I mean, we had Chris earlier talking about that um, it's important that we don't isolate, that there's actually a table and there's discussion that, that happens in order to fix some of these problems. And he has, you know, um, uh, against what you guys have actually really mentioned, that there's no democracy, so to speak. You even refuse to call the elections elections. You're calling them selections. Dinkundla selections, as you call them. Um, but uh, he's essentially saying that there is something to build on. Uh, on a democracy in Swaziland. Do you agree? And do you agree with the suggestions which Lucky has just made now? I would like to, to agree with the suggestions that Lucky had, mm-hmm. had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Let me highlight some few problematic areas with regards to the, to the Chatham uh, House report. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I think the report um, neglects um, the presence of, um, f- of organizations, of movements that are organizing on the ground in, in Swaziland. I will cite an example. It highlights that... Um, um, financial problems uh, are, the, uh, are the only forces that will bring, for example, the, the Mswata regime to the negotiation table. It, it ignores the, the people's power, the people's organizations on the, on the ground that can compel the Mswata regime to come to the table. Mm-hmm. The, second, the, the second issue is that um, the report does not address the allocation of resources to the security ca- cluster in the country, which is a very serious concern in, in, in most African countries. Because this is where, for example, a, a culture of corruption and west, westful, westful ex- extravagance is, is perpetuated. The report does not address that. And then the second, um, the third thing rather, is that it, it bypasses the need to apply uh, universal standards of what should constitute a democratic ele- electoral process. Mm. So it, 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 the, the report is silent on this. Okay, and we have, actually, me- we have actually concluded that um, the, the, they are part of a self-saving elite who pontificate and even at times uh, in, uh, criticize, nevertheless, the regime, but they, they support it to, to, to some extent. So the report is not, is not neutral at all together. Its, uh, it's, its purpose is to entrench the, the Swazi regime and ignore the, the struggles on the ground. Chris, let me give, Chris, let me give you a chance to reply to that. Um, yeah, I think that the, the report doesn't, um, doesn't overlook um, the application of international norms and standards. I think that that's one of the things that the report is actually um, focusing on in terms of trying to encourage international engagement. Um, the report is designed as a way of encouraging international engagement and aiding um, and cooperating with um, internal opposition movement. And it does, in fact, um, talk about 
the need for SADAC in particular, and also other electoral observer missions, particularly the Commonwealth, um, in applying their norms and their definitions of what constitutes democracy in their um, electoral observer missions. I think previously um, the in- international election observers in Swaziland have been far too ready to um, claim or to sign off the elections as being um, free and fair or at least peaceful and credible, and they've been far too quick to um, sign off the elections and say, well, the elections happened and they happened in accordance with Swazi law or rather they happened in accordance with the Swazi Tinkundla process, and they haven't been looking at um, the application of international norms and definitions, and that's something that we do actually, um, we do actually highlight in the report, that these, these external norms and standards need to be applied. Um, in terms of uh, dealing with the monarch, the internal opposition parties uh, and internal opposition movements um, we found to be um, they're not not on a uniform platform. So it's very, very important that these opposition movements are doing what they're doing. But in terms of having a united platform, one doesn't necessarily exist at the moment. And so the report's looking at ways in which international engagement can assist in this process, because I don't think that reform can come from uh, the internal process alone. I don't think that there's a critical mass of people to be able to um, produce internal reform alone. But it's important then for the international community to engage on this um, on this matter. And in terms of dealing with the king, while well, you've got the king there as the absolute monarch and the person who holds all executive power, it's going to be impossible to implement change in the country without dealing with him. Pilani? Let, let, me, let me allude to, to what Lucky um, pointed. Uh, if if we're saying that um, there are opportunities for, for negotiations, EDC, uh, I would like to ask a question, like negotiating with who and for what? And I find it very pro- problematic that as citizens of Africa, all the times we have to negotiate for our freedom, we have to negotiate for our economic emancipation and all those things. I think it's, it's, it's absolutely outrageous to say that um, we, we, we should create a negotiating platform. I think we must focus on, 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 on building structures on the ground, on building people's movement on the ground that are able to shift the, the, the balance of forces in, 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 in inside Swaziland. Okay. And my major problem with, with the, 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 the Chatham House report is that it focuses on the, on the elite and it ignores the, 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 the people's struggles on the ground. That's well, my, my main area of concern. That's that. Pilani Ndebele alluding to a report by uh, Chatham House there, you know, or, but all things as Swaziland, believing that, um, in, in his words, that it doesn't really represent the people on the ground, describing it as a self-serving elite, which, of course, Chris has really uh, said that uh, it is not the case. And it was looking at a lot of issues around uh, Swaziland. Bringing the time now to almost five minutes, before we have to end our discussion here on African Dialogue. Time is never on our side. We're going to move to a short break and after this we'll wrap it up.
still tuned into African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikona Misa, and I'm joined in studio today by Pilani Ndebele. I'm joined also by Lakilu Kellen. On the line, we've got Chris Van Dome, who is a researcher at Chatham House in London. Gentlemen, we've discussed what, uh, you know, what this actually uh, means, this whole uh, monarchical democracy, as uh, the king has described it, uh, with some of you agreeing with, with, with its uh, contents and other is not really seeing what it can actually bring forth to the table. Now, in my just as a last question posed to you, and just briefly as we close, um, as uh, Swaziland looks to go to the polls now, what sort of climate do you think this actually has created uh, for the people on the ground, which uh, Pilani was talking so passionately about earlier on, moving forward? Well, there is no opportunity whatsoever for the people of Swaziland. I want to repeat that once mm. again. The call by, by Pudema to the people of Swaziland to boycott this election must be supported by all international and democracy-loving people all over the world. Thirdly, it is so embarrassing to have an institution based in London where they enjoy democracy and all of this and to come and insult our intelligence here in Swaziland. I've never heard of this organization, but I know of them today that they are on the side of the oppressor. Fourthly and last one is that all observer machines that are currently in source then must pull out with immediate effect because there's nothing to observe. Okay, over to you, Pilani. I, I, I would like to, to perhaps, um, that in, in, in as much as we acknowledge that um, there is um, no level, level playing field in, in the promotion of democracy in Swaziland, I think it is critical for, for various components of labor, youth, women, and civil society to work together in, in Swaziland because I believe that. Um, it is uh, only a collective effort that will bring a chance uh, for political transformation in Switzerland. And I think we also need to highlight that um, strategies and opinions and even personalities may differ. Mm-hmm. But I, I believe that um, there is a common vision uh, for, for, for Switzerland. The people of Switzerland want a multi-party democratic country. And I think if we rally behind, uh, behind that common vision, we'll be able to transform Switzerland. And um, even these these, ele- these elections, rather, to be more specific, they, they must be, be called off. Uh, I agree with Lucky. All the international must support the, the boycott of the, ele- of the election. And if all the observers could pull out immediately, it could be a good advantage for the democratic forces. Well, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of time now here on African Dialogue. It is time for us to indeed wrap things up here. And indeed, it does seem like a discussion which we could have on four hours. And I think maybe what we will do is we'll have another installment of actually discussing the issues around uh, Swaziland. And Chris, we will be able to then later on give you another opportunity, you know, to reply to some of the accusations which has been put to uh, Chatham House and all the representatives there. But at this moment i'd just like to thank our guests for joining us uh, today and just giving us sentiments and making us understand exactly what this monarchical democracy in swaziland actually means thank you very much gentlemen thank you for joining us thank you thank you thank you that, very much that was uh, chris vando who is a researcher at chatham house in london lakilu kelly spokesperson of the swaziland solidarity network and of course pilani ndebele campaign manager Swaziland Democratic Campaign and also earlier remember we had Ibrahim Faki who was the electoral who was with the Electoral Institute for the Sustainability of Democracy in Africa bringing the time now to 15 minutes before the top of the hour and you know what that time means it means it's time for us to check what's happening in our economics with Wisani Matebula
Thanks, Kona. Senegal has won a case before an international tribunal to rescind the $2.2 billion deal with Excel Metal that the steelmakers suspended work on an iron ore mine in the West African nation. A Senegalese official, Abdoulaye Latif Koulibaly, says the International Chamber of Commerce Arbitration Court in Paris had ruled that Senegal was within its rights to cancel the 2007 deal with Excel Metal for the Faleme mine because the company had failed to keep up its commitments. He says the court had not yet ruled on Senegal's request for $750 million in damages. South Africa's Fuel Retailers Association says it's optimistic uh, that uh, its wage talks uh, with uh, striking employees will yield positive results. The talks will resume this afternoon and are expected to continue up until tomorrow. The association CEO Regis Bia says that uh, both parties should be prepared to compromise. Uh, the Fuel Retailers Association has always uh, positioned ourselves in that uh, approach of being, you know, constructive and open upfront about some business realities. And I think both parties need to come to the realities uh, that is facing us, both the employees, and also facing uh, the employers. All we are saying is that, you know, uh, in any negotiation table, there is an employer value proposition, and that needs to be taken into account. There is also an employee value proposition. Meanwhile, motor assembly plants in South Africa have warned that the component strike will negatively affect their production. Vehicle assembly plants in the Eastern Cape province say they will be forced to close by the end of the week if the component strike drags on. Automotive industry workers only return to work on Monday after striking for two weeks. Chris Thexton, as a human resources manager at General Motors in PE. The strike in the component sector will have a compounding effect on the three-week strike that we've just concluded. So as one company out of seven in the local auto industry, we've lost in the region of 4,000 units. Most of our uh, companies work on a just-in-time supply basis. That means we have components for just a limited period of time. So we'll be able to run normally through the end of this week, and thereafter we would effectively be shutting the plant. We call that short time, which means we don't produce vehicles and we don't pay people. Mali's new mining minister says a government will carry out a complete inventory of existing mining contracts and stands and ready to renegotiate any which are not in the West African country's interests. A new government tasked with restoring economic growth and stamping out corruption took office this week in Mali, sub-Saharan Africa's third largest gold producer after President Ibrahim Boubacar-Kita swept to victory in post last month. Mines Minister Bobo Sise says government has decided to carry out a complete inventory of what exists. Mining contracts, titles, licenses, be it in the mining or the oil, the oil sector. And there's some commodities news. Copa has risen around half a percent, recouping last session's losses on signs of strength in the Chinese economy and hopes that the U.S. military strike against Syria will be averted. Syria accepted a Russian proposal to give up chemical weapons and win a reprieve from the U.S. military strikes, which could boost investor appetite for risky assets such as industrial metals. The gain in copper was kept in by rising global inventories and uh, on concerns that the U.S. Federal Reserve might soon start to reduce its monetary stimulus program following signals that the world's largest economy is recovering.
Pistigal markets. The dollar at 9.98 South African rands at 8.44 Botswana Pulas and at 5.29 Zambian Quaches. Also trading at 0.63 to the British pound and at 0.752 the euro. Looking at uh, commodities first uh, platinum $1,425 gold $1,364 a fine ounce. The price of uh, Brent crude oil drastically going down uh, from yesterday's close of $115 now at $111.65 a pound. And that's how it's looking. Time now for a sports update with Tommy Kuza. In your sports update this hour, Nigeria's Super Eagles coach Stephen Keshe says he is happy with his charges after the Super Eagles defeated the Stallions of Burkina Faso 4-1 in an international friendly that was played last night at the Amadou Bello Stadium in Kaduna, Nigeria. Keshe was full of praise for his team even though he wasn't pleased with the goal that his defenders conceded. Tony Ubani reports. Praised by Brownie Day, an additional goal from Sholan Yobi of Newcastle and Emmanuel Emenike. Both sides used the match to prepare for next month's 2014 final World Cup qualifier playoff. However, the Stallions were without several of their top stars like Ellen Traore, Harry Fitzbans, South Africa best defender James Okwot and Nedis International. Dead before Nigeria yesterday, Brownie Day, who until now constantly misses scoring chances, gave the Eagles the lead in the 13th minute when he capitalized on a blunder by Burkina Faso goalkeeper Larry Diare. The Dynamo Kiel striker later doubled the advantage on 43 minutes when he got to the end of a true ball by John Ogu before he kicked the ball past the Burkina Faso goalkeeper. Newcastle United Shalani Niobri fired Eagles third goal in the 53rd minute, substituted Emmanuel Emenike completed the route with a fourth goal in the 53rd minute as Nigeria turned on the style inside a packed Amaru Bello Stadium. The Italians put a goal back late on when a cross evaded everyone before Simpore passed home from the back post. South Africa's Bafana Bafana began their road to 2018 Soccer World Cup with a disappointing 2-1 loss to Zimbabwe in an international friendly that was played in Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg last night. This follows the weekend's disappointment of failing to advance to the final round of the African qualifiers for next year's World Cup in Brazil. Head coach Gordon Igesand is still untroubled and said... Had he had retained the bulk of the players that did the duty against Botswana, his team would have been singing a different tune. If I had eight, seven players or eight players that started the game on Saturday and put three of these guys in, it would have been a, a big difference. I mean, I know that. I don't, have to, I don't have to spell that out. I mean, if that team had played on Saturday, played against Zimbabwe, the score would have been three or four, no. There's no doubt about that. But in the day, this is a Bafana team. This is Bafana Bafana. And this is what that, that I'll get worried about. Igesand also blamed the dysfunctional development teams, the under-17, 20 and 23, for his team's poor display last night. It's very important for us to move forward, to have a strong Bafana Bafana team. We've got to make sure, because there's a couple of them out there who should be playing an under-23 team to gain that experience that is necessary. But we haven't got an under-23 at the moment. So, you know, all of a sudden it looks like the Bafana team must become the under-23 team or the under-20 team. It doesn't work like that. This is the Bafana team. And now in rugby, South African Springbok rugby coach Anna Kemea has named an unchanged 23-man squad to face New Zealand at Eden Park in Auckland in the 
fourth round of the rugby championship on Saturday. After beating Australia for the first time at Suncorp Stadium last weekend, the Springboks travel to New Zealand, where they will face the tough task of securing their first away victory over the All Blacks since 2009. Springbok fly half Monestain said that the team is ready for the challenge. I think last year this time, you know, a lot of the guys were still young first, you know, guy like Eben played his first second test and you know, there's a like a young young side from Tain, you know, this I think that the time we've been together now you to make it a more experienced side and I think the confidence is there. And finally with cricket, the South African cricket team that will face Pakistan in the one day international in Test Series was named yesterday. The Proteus will face Pakistan in the United Arab Emirates for the fourteenth from the fourteenth of October. Uh, Proteus test captain Graham Smith was pleased with his rehabilitation after having surgery on his ankle in May and is ready to share his experience with the young players. I certainly still have the motivation, um, definitely. I mean, I missed uh, a lot of the winter tours um, and I, I feel like uh, I have an important role to play in one-day cricket, uh, not only from a performance perspective but from an experience pers- perspective. Um, I feel like I can add a lot of value to to the team and uh, certainly the younger guys. Um, so I'm looking forward to that opportunity. Um, but obviously at the moment, the test, test matches are first, so that's, that's f- first and foremost in my mind. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Zikona Miso. Well, thank you to Tami Kuza for that sports update. And it does bring us now to the end of the, today's program. We'd like to once again thank our guests for joining us. Do remember that the dialogue never stops here. Be sure to communicate your views. Find us on Facebook, tweet us or SMS us to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five nine zero. Remember that African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. From me, Zikona Miso, it's adios until tomorrow. Next up is Africa Midday with Benjamin Mushadam.